Good morning to all of you. It's good to be here with you all. That was interesting coming from so far back. We usually sit in the front row, but we have a new addition in our family, little Emily, who's four and a half years old, and we're very pleased to have her with us. And we didn't want to be a distraction in the very front row with teaching her how to behave in church. Well, I'd ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Continue our exposition in this book as we come to these ethical exhortations that the Apostle gives for us. We'll be considering today only verses 25 to 27. Verse 25 to 27. There should be an outline in your bulletin if you want a road map to follow along. We live in days today of ethical crisis. No matter where you look, from Wall Street to Hollywood to Main Street, we live in days of ethical crisis. Just think of Wall Street for a moment. The financial crisis of 2008 and all that that entailed, the repackaging of subprime loans and selling them to higher-ups and then they would sell them off. And it was all fueled by greed and for more money. There was much deception in that. When somebody without a job, when somebody would say, just say that you make a million dollars a year, it's stated income, you'll get the loan for $500,000 and you have the house. That's deceit, that's lying. Paul addresses that today in our text. Think of the media. You watch a television commercial, if you do, we don't. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Praise the Lord for DVR, you can pause that and fast forward right through it. But if you use this toothpaste, guess what? You're going to sparkle and all the girls are going to look at you. Or if you drink this brand of beer, Bud Light, (coughs) that somehow all the girls are just going to flock to you. There's deception that fuels in those types of commercials, billboards, and I could name a hundred other examples. But even closer to home for us in the workplace, there can be a temptation to deceit, to maybe surfing the internet or maybe twittering on Facebook or something or other during while you're supposed to be working with your employer. And some employers will allow a very small amount of time for that. Um, But the idea that sometimes we can rob our employers of taking time that's supposed to be for the employer for our personal benefit. Calling in sick. I just want a comp day. I want to go to the beach. It's a sunny day. I want to go to the beach. I'll just call in sick. I'll tell them I'm sick. Is that, is that being truthful? No, that's lying. Sadly, even in the church, there can be a disregard for truth. And this is, where, this is Paul's real concern. That even in the church, we can, we can make excuses, we can exaggerate, we can tell little white lies to justify ourselves, and this is wrong. The true evidence that you have been born again is not some past profession that you made walking an aisle or saying a prayer or whatever, the true evidence is what? How you live today. Don't tell me about what you used to do or what what happened in the past. Show me by how you live today if you're going to take the name Christ and a Christian. So let's read verses 25 to 32. We're going to read the broader section, though we're only considering the first three verses today. He says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one with one who has need let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear do not grieve the holy spirit of god by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God and Christ has forgiven you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do bow before You once again now asking, O Lord, that You would attend unto Your Word as it is proclaimed. 
We pray, Lord, that you would send the Holy Spirit in a powerful way among us. Lord, to remove distractions and cares, to to make our hearts soft and pliable and ready to receive the Word implanted, which is able to save our very souls. Lord, we pray that you would have your way, even as we consider these particular areas. We pray that you bring conviction where conviction is necessary and grant the grace of repentance as well to turn from sin. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the overall context, the last couple weeks we've considered verses 17 to 24, where you have a portrait of a pagan, and then you had the putting off of the old man and putting on of the new man. And he said, he contrasts the pagan, the old Gentile pagans, their former way of life, with who we are now in Christ. But you have not learned Christ in that way. You have put off the old man. You've put on the new self. And so there's a big contrast there. The idea of putting off the old man, it's something that has been done in the original, but we do fight remaining sin. I made that point. But the key is verse 23, but you have been, or that you may be renewed in the spirit of your mind. There's a constant labor to renewing our minds so that we might live in a way that matches our calling. And putting on the new self in the likeness of God created in Christ Jesus. So that's the context. And now he comes to a new unit, as it were. And I think the unit goes from 425 to 5.2. The chapter break is unfortunate here, but it contains specific, concrete exhortations for ethical living. Okay, this is who you are now in Christ. He's been building the case since chapter 1. Uh, really, who we are in Christ. Chapter 1 to 3, all of our wealth, all of our riches that, that we're even seated with Him now in the heavenlies, positionally. And then, even in chapter 4, the verse, first 24 verses, the general exhortations to unity and to using our gifts and being a part of the body, and even those previous verses that I just mentioned. But now He moves to the nuts and the bolts of Christian living, the very basics of Christian living. Specific commands, like very simply, speaking the truth, controlling your anger, no longer steal, but work, be industrious, be faithful in your, in, for your employers, speaking with kind speech, edifying speech, and so forth. Each one of these have to do with the personal relationships we have in the body of Christ. It's very much connected to the previous section. Now Paul exhorts us what to not do. There's typically the pattern in these verses in a negative, but then he gives a corresponding positive. Do not do this. Lay aside falsehood. Do not be false anymore, but speak the truth. And so forth, with the exception of anger, but through this whole section, That is the pattern. And then he gives a motivating statement of why you should do this and in each one of these instances. So I've broken up the text. You'll see in your outline, four C's. Be compelled to guard your tongue. Be controlled, that is to control your anger. Be careful not to give the devil an opportunity. And be committed to living for the glory of God. Because that's really the big picture of what Paul is talking about living for the glory of God. When we capture a vision of who God is and his character, we're motivated to then live our lives in a way that pleases him. So first of all, be compelled to guard your tongue. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each of you, with his neighbor. We're to put off falsehood. And as I said, this links to the previous section. The therefore is there, point linking backwards. As well, but also, this is what those who have new life or who have put on the new self, this is what they look like. This is how they should live. This is the snapshot of what characterizes their character. And also, he uses that same word you probably remember in verse 22, or yeah, 22 from last week, where it says, laying aside the old self. He picks up on the same verb, he uses it differently here, but so there's a definite connection here. And when he says laying aside, he's using it figuratively. Stop doing what you're accustomed to. Falsehood, which is part of our nature before we come to Christ. Stop it. Throw it aside like a foul-smelling tennis shoe and cast it aside from you. Lay it aside. Falsehood is to 
lie or to be characterized by that which is false. For Paul, it's not enough to stop lying, but we must put on truth, speaking truth, which he's already alluded to earlier in this chapter. Our scripture reading in John 8, if you were paying attention, Jesus was very upset with these Pharisees, and he says in verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own nature, for he was a liar and is the father of lies. Now, our versions don't capture the force of what Jesus is saying. Uh, you are of your father, sort of it does, but what he uses, he uses the word ek, which you literally have proceeded from your father, the devil. In other words, you Pharisees, when you behave like this, you are nothing less than the very descendants of the devil himself. What do you think Jesus thinks about lying? Pretty serious business, isn't it? I mean, it's very clear from that text and the myriad of other texts that could be cited. Why don't you think of a time now when someone has asked you to lie? Brother, would you mind just, um, you know, doing this or doing that? Or, or, or maybe where, where you contrived a lie in your own mind and you knew it was wrong, you were under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but you proceeded with it. Or a time when you do lie, and what happens? It, it, you fall back into this pattern, you lie, and then you have to lie to cover up that lie, and then you lie to cover up the previous lies, and it just becomes a pattern of falsehood. The Lord would not have us to live that way. I read a story um, of a father and son out shopping at a sporting goods store with uh, bicycles and so forth, and with the busy Christmas season, a delivery man came with a big you know, load of boxes on a, on a dolly and just came in really fast to the door and knocked a TV right off the stand and it shattered. And the owner of the store said, it's okay, you don't have to pay for it. I'll just tell the supplier that it was damaged while it was being shipped. And so the father who had his son with him immediately left the store being a Christian and said, I'm not going to give this man my business if he's going to live in that way. And that kind of stuff happens all the time, doesn't it? It happens all the time. To be a liar is to be characterized by wickedness. I mean, just punch in liar, lies, and so forth in your concordance or, or whatever and look that up on your concordance and just read all of the verses. At the very end of Revelation, in chapter 21, it talks about those that will be in the lake of fire and it talks about the cowardly, those who... Uh, have not believed, and sorcerers, and all of that. And then at the very end of that list, it says, and all liars will have their part in the lake of fire that burns forever. That's a frightening statement. Unbelieving? No, oh, I believe. Cowardly? No, by God's grace, I have some courage in Christ. Sorcerer? No, you know, all of this. But then all liars. It's a frightening statement. It's something that should cause us to step back. Am I being truthful with my life, with my words, how I live? In Romans chapter 1, Paul's laying out that snapshot of what the, the wicked Gentiles are like in the latter part of that chapter, and he says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Jeremiah, in his prophecy, the Lord brings down this indictment against the people. They bend their tongue like a bow. Lies and not truth prevail in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me. Strong words from the Lord, because they're characterized by being liars. And notice it even says, the Lord, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's inspired that the Lord... Lord God says that they proceed from evil to evil to evil. You open the door now to where other evils are easy. Now what about for us? I'm talking a little bit abstract. Let's examine ourselves for a moment. Let's consider, when's the last time we've rationalized, well, it wasn't a lie, I just exaggerated a little bit. Well, I didn't tell a complete lie, it was just a 
partial truth. I, I shaded a little color to it. Okay, when's the last time that's happened? What about for some of you children? Cheating on a test. Looking at answers somehow. What about making excuses to your parents? I don't know. Or I didn't hear you. All of these types of things are lies. Or how about this one, children? I forgot. Okay? Be careful. And for us adults, income tax times coming up. Are we going to shade what the truth is on our income tax forms to, to gain a couple greedy dollars that will be worthless in eternity? Are we those who are compelled to flattery, to get our way, to flatter someone up so that we can get our way? To be recompensed somehow. Exaggeration. Again, just shading the truth. We need to be very careful. And it's my prayer that even this week, as I've wrestled through this and have come under conviction just in little small areas, but they're not small to the Lord, they're big, that you would examine yourself and think, this is serious business. If I've put off the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, if I'm being renewed in the mind, if I put on the new self, and now I'm in the likeness of God, how contrary it is to continue on in falsehood. It is utterly a contradiction to your profession in Christ. A Christian is to tell the truth. Turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, the book of Acts, a snapshot of the early life and the spread of the gospel. You're probably familiar with this story, verses 1 to 5. Notice the seriousness of lying as it's recorded here. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's stop there. Okay, He sold some real estate up in Julian or whatever and, and you know, had a million dollars and brought $500,000 to the church. Wow! I mean, we'd be tempted to applaud. That's great. He gave a 50% tithe. I don't know how many of us give a 50%. Whatever. So that's what he did. There's nothing wrong with that, right? But then... It says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back some of the price of the land? Obviously, there was some assumption that he would sell the land and give the full amount to the church. And so there was deception there. And notice he lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? In other words, he had the power to say, I'm giving a 50% tithe, but he obviously had communicated that I'm giving it all. It was was under your control. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it goes on to say the young men come, take him out to bury him. The wife comes in and the same thing happens. Again, what's my point? The seriousness of speaking the truth is clearly emphasized here. One man said to tell the truth and tell it right. A lie will never do. The Bible says that God is truth and he wants truth from you. And so, really, the ability to lie is a liability, isn't it? When you lie, it's a liability. You have a debt you must pay. Well, secondly, he goes on and he says, speak the truth. Having laid aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are all members of one another. Speak the truth. This is a command. It's in the imperative. And the word he uses means a serious kind of speech. He says, to his neighbor, to all Uh, But the context is in particular the members of the church. And we'll unfold that in a little bit. Speak the truth. And Paul has been emphasizing the truth throughout this chapter. In verse 15, speak the truth in love. Last week's text, it occurred twice. Being taught in Him, 
just as truth is in Jesus, and also that we are in the likeness of God who's been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Again, truth is being reinforced through this section. And it's an obvious reference to Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 16, which Deepu read for us. And in that context, he's urging the restored Jewish remnant, they've just returned from exile, to not go back to their former ways. In fact, if you study the whole book of Zechariah, truth is mentioned six times, five times in chapter 8 alone. Paul has this in his mind. He's quoting truth, emphasizing truth as he's penning the book of Ephesians from a prison cell. He thinks, he knows the Old Testament scriptures. Where do I see truth being emphasized so much? It's Zechariah 8. And then the exhortation in verse 16, speak truth each of you with his neighbor. And he takes that and quotes that here. By the way, when Paul quotes or paraphrases the Old Testament Scriptures, he's, he's giving added authority and truth to what he is saying. Uh, the Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology says this. I thought it was a helpful quote. The sanctity of truth is fundamental in biblical teaching since it is based on the nature and character of God. Therefore, to despise truth is to despise God. And the Scriptures teach this topic with profound seriousness. In the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3-4, the serpent denied the truth of God's pronouncement and encouraged the woman to act in defiance of divine truth. So in short, we need to be consistent to let our lives adorn our confession, to live our lives so that it matches our confession. Scottish commentator John Eady says, Christians are to speak the whole truth without distortion or exaggeration. No promise is to be falsified. No mutual understanding violated. The word of a Christian ought to be his bond, every syllable being but an expression of the truth of the inward parts. Every syllable that comes out of your mouth. Now, I want to qualify something here because um, truthfulness does not always mean telling everything you know without considering the effects or the impacts of what could happen. For example, somebody shares their heart with you that they're struggling in a certain area and would you pray for me and I've been fighting this sin and would you help me and lock arms with me as I I fight this sin and then for you to go shout it from the housetops. Is it true? Yes, it's true. (laughs) But you don't do that. That's betraying confidences. Edification is the key and we'll see that in the coming weeks as that's further developed. And he ends this, verse 25 here, for we are members of one another. There's that, that motivating clause, clause that we are all part of the body of Christ. And how can you have the hand that's given to falsehood and the rest of the body given to truth, right? There's a contradiction there. He's already emphasized this in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 16, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We are members of one another. It's speaking of the church of Christ. The motivating clause that falsehood is laid aside. It should be laid aside with the old man. And we are to speak the truth with all, but especially in the household of God. Just think for a minute how your body works. Your brain, I read this in an article of some science magazine in the last month or two, the brain is more complex than all the computers in the world, even today. That's amazing. But your brain is always sending signals. It's sending signals for me to move my hand, I guess, right now. But So if you're stepping out into a crosswalk, and you hear a truck, your brain tells your feet, get back up onto the sidewalk, right? And same thing, you turn on the water to wash your hands and it's scolding hot, your hands are sending a message to your brain. Well, in the body of Christ, Christians must work together as well. We're all different parts of the body, and so it doesn't make sense if there's not good communication. And communication has to be done honestly and in love. 
One man said, a lie is a stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. Into the vital organs. So the simple point is that the body is a picture of harmonious relationships and love being expressed and bearing one another's burdens and there's no room for falsehood. There's just no room for that in the body of Christ. Well, first we've seen to be compelled to speak the truth and now in verse 26, to be controlled, or be self-controlled. He says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So first of all, don't sin when you're angry. There's three imperatives in this one verse, three commands, and there's two of them that are negative. They're put with the negative to reinforce that, and one is positive. And the positive one here is be angry. It's actually a command to be angry. That can cause us to scratch our heads a little bit. The NIV, it's an unfortunate translation, I think, but they have, in your anger, do not sin. They take away the fact that it really is a command. Um, That's an unfortunate translation. But it can be puzzling. Be angry? Wait a minute, I thought anger was bad. Down in verse 31, it says, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger be put away from you. Well, it's very clearly (laughs) indicating that that is sinful anger in verse 31. In verse 26, the way he frames 26 and 27, this is speaking of a righteous anger. You might think of it like this. Be angry if you are angry, but do not sin. So it's a righteous anger. And a righteous anger is certainly attributed to God, isn't it? We see that again and again. Psalm 7, for example, says that uh, that He is a God of indignation every day. That's a righteous anger against sin. Uh, Psalm 79, Psalm 80, etc. Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. But it's also said of Christ. And turn to John chapter 2 for a moment as we look at this. John chapter 2 in your Bibles. This is just after his first miracle of turning the water into wine in Cana. Verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And the disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And that's a a verse from Psalm 69. Now, You can think of Jesus as meek and mild, and he is and he was, and and, on all of that. But in this particular scene, I don't think you overturn tables and you're taking a whip, driving animals out and all of that. I mean, he was really angry, but it was a righteous anger. It was a zeal for the Lord and for his house that had been perverted into really dishonesty and falsehood. It was what was going on here. Likewise, in the early chapters of Mark, Remember when Jesus heals the man with the withered hand and it was on the Sabbath and and the the Pharisees got so angry at him. And he was vehement towards the Pharisees there. So the question is whether our anger is justified or not. That's what we need to think about. Um, Righteous indignation against sins. Well, yeah, I think sometimes, very rarely, I can have a righteous anger. We have to be very careful. I'm going to qualify all this in a minute. But let me give you an example. We're hoping to begin supporting a ministry called Generate Hope. Generate Hope is one of the two ministries in the United States like it, one in New York and one here. And their ministry is to reach out to those who are enslaved in the human trafficking market and are forced to be prostitutes. And this ministry is brand new. And when I think about that and I think about the men that extract women from Asia or Mexico or whatever and young girls and force them into this kind of lifestyle, that makes me angry. (laughs) 
And it, it's an anger against the sin that's going on. And also, think of child molestation. A little child that's affected and traumatized for life. And, and to have an anger in that regard. Um, think of an elderly person that's beat up beyond recognition for no reason at all. You know, these are the kinds of things that, yeah, we can, we can become angry about. We're angry against the sin, right? Because it's a sin against the Lord, and the Lord has not created us to live that way. But we must be very careful, and I'm going to qualify that in a moment. Matthew Henry says this, If we would be angry and not sin, we must be angry at nothing but sin. Did you catch that? That's a profound statement. If we would be angry and not sin, we must be angry at nothing but sin. He goes on to qualify, we should be more jealous for the glory of God than for any interest or reputation of our own. See, oftentimes we can justify ourselves that, well, you sinned against me. Don't you see how you sinned against me? And, and you know, it's a righteous anger because you're the one that sinned and all of that. No, we need to be very careful about that. We need to be jealous for the glory of God. And it's interesting how this verse appears back in Ephesians. The, um, right before it speaks about speaking the truth with our neighbor and individual members. Well, if we're not speaking the truth, we can be tempted to become angry, right? And then to give the devil a foothold to take that to create a conflict. You see how that works? When we're not speaking the truth, that's why we have to be very careful. I see the verses as being connected. Now, even here, Paul is drawing from an Old Testament allusion. He's from Psalm 4.4. You know, he he adds this to highlight his point. And Psalm 4.4 says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Now, the context of that psalm, it's a short psalm. It's an evening prayer. Is that somehow his rights were violated. He was accused of a sin or something along those lines in verse 2. And then verse 4 says to be angry and do not sin, but by verse 7 and 8, peace and joy have returned to him. God replaces it with peace and joy. Now, anger is a positive command. There's nothing wrong with being angry for a righteous cause, as I said, but there are times, in fact, there's times when we should be angry. One man said this, anger can be kindled by the fire of hell or by the fire of the altar of God. Now, anger from our sinful hearts, from our selfishness, from, from disturbing me and all that, is always wrong, that type of anger. Anger from our hearts is sinful and destructive. Um, you can think of a, a situation, the easiest situation to picture, and you can think of a workplace scenario, um, a child-parent scenario, but between two spouses. And, you know, maybe... Uh, Mom's had a hard day, dad comes home, raises her voice, whatever the scenario goes, and, and one of them becomes very angry at the other one, and it's a, it's, you know, they've been mistreated, yes, but they become angry, and what happens is they both fall into this anger, and that is not a righteous anger. It's such a slight move from being angry against sin, we need to be very careful when it's sin against us, because usually it's our rights that we're touting and all of that, and we're masking it with that. Because it's this close from moving to resentment, unforgiveness, bitterness, harboring grudges, treating people differently. It can move so quickly to that. And so we need to be very careful. Remember that anger is one letter away from what? Danger. (laughs) An angry person can be dangerous. Um, Someone said, uh, don't fly in a rage unless you are prepared for a rough landing. So we need to be careful. This command should bring us to our knees because it's so hard to be righteously angry. Um, we, we, have the, we, don't, we lack the strength to fully do this right. So, the best thing, not to be angry. If we're going to be angry about anything, it's against sin and with the glory of God in view. John Trapp says, it is not a sin to be angry, but hard not to sin when we are angry. So as I just said, the best thing is to not be characterized by anger. Well, then he moves on. It says, and do not let, that's the second imperative, go down on your anger. Do not let. Um, 
Stop letting the sun go down on your anger. Having spoken about anger, he now shows us what anger can turn into. And this is a different word than what he used earlier. That's the same root, but it's only used here in the New Testament. Where he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. It means to be intensely provoked. Uh, to have strong resentment or to be in an angry mood. And so that's, that's, that's the force of that word. Again, used only here. Um, and so to be slow to anger... If we can put on that practice of being slow to anger, we will be less likely to carry out these types of things. We've considered that um, last month in our Sunday school classes, but Proverbs 14.29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. Chapter 16, chapter 19, again, uh, Proverbs 22, have no friendship with a man of anger, lest you pick up his ways, it says in another place. And it says, do not let the sun go down. Well, that's an interesting thing. So, hmm, it's 12.30. I can be angry for the next four hours as long as I'm done by sundown. No, that's not what it's saying. But it is giving a time frame that there's a time limit. And really, we see this throughout the Bible, even in the Old Testament, in regards to the payment of a laborer for his wages was to be by sundown so that he could go and provide for his family. And so here, the um, time limit of... Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Of course, the idea, this admonition, is if when the sun goes down and you stew about it all night long, resentment, bitterness, and all of that can set in so quickly. As you fester, as that festers. The day of anger should be the day of reconciliation. You become angry. And I do from time to time, and I have to seek forgiveness of whoever is offended, usually my family, and, and I do that. And I seek to reconcile as quick as possible. That's the time to make reconciliation. Not a week later, not a month later. In counseling, I'll have people tell me, well, you know, it's this situation from last winter or something like that, and it's, that should have been dealt with a long time ago. So we need to be careful to have short accounts Never go to bed angry. How many of us have been guilty of this from time to time? Where we justify in our own mind that it's the other person's job to come, or I'm waiting for them to call me on the phone. I'm not going to be the first one. Away with such behavior. We're to be characterized by humility and by taking the first step. In a marriage context, men, you have the responsibility to initiate reconciliation. This is why authentic forgiveness must fill our hearts and it benefits both you and the other person. I heard a story this week of a 27-year-old man who pleaded guilty uh, to assault uh, after he was arrested for attacking a 59-year-old woman. Not attacking, hitting her. This was in Minnesota. They're waiting for a bus at a bus stop. And let me get the quote right. He started yelling at her, Why don't you show me some respect? And he kept saying it and saying it and getting angry, and so she pulls out a phone to call the police, and he smacks her or something or other. A man tries to intervene, and he takes his folder and hits the 63-year-old man. Well, the folder drops. He runs away. Well, guess what's in the folder? All of his personal information, his name and everything, so he was caught anyway. But what was inside was all of his notes and his homework for his anger management class. <laughs> so we can at least be happy that he's working on the problem. But he's on his way to the anger management class, and this whole thing happens. And that just goes to show the folly of anger, though. I mean, think the next time you get angry, you're, you're like this young man that just can't control himself and thinks everybody doesn't respect him or something. A lack of self-control. A huge problem. You need to be careful. And so, you children, you can become angry when you're corrected by your parents when your parents are trying to instruct you and show you the way of godliness, to show you the right way to do things, do not harden your heart and become angry. Be soft and take that instruction to heart. Take that and don't become angry. And likewise, parents with our children, sometimes when we're disciplining for the 59th time on one area, it can provoke us to anger. We have to have self-control and we have to go about that gracefully. Never discipline in anger. Go and pray first and then come and deal with the situation. 
is you will only harden your child's heart. Anger is a huge problem. Not only in the world, but in the church. Churches divide. Church splits happen. Personality conflicts because people will not humble themselves and be transparent and, and just confess sin and move on. It's a big problem. And it's sad. And it brings shame to the name of Christ. Well, Moving on, verse 30, or 27, uh, be careful not to give the devil an opportunity. It says, and do not give the devil an opportunity. The devil's goal is to destroy you. The devil's goal is to, to he prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He wants to destroy, your, destroy you. He hates you. He hates your Christian profession. He hates your family. And yes, he hates the church. And he will sow seeds of discord as often as he can. I'm reading a book on prayer right now, and um, I'm trying to think of the exact quote. This just came to my mind, but I was reading it last night. But it said something along the lines of one hour spent in uninterrupted prayer and communion with God and reestablishing that will do more good for you and your Christian walk than months of the devil's planning to stumble you up. Because now you've, you've, you've got this right, and so he, he can't read your mind. And I thought that was a profound statement. But <clears throat> So Paul here now provides the motivation to dealing with anger quickly. Be angry. If you're going to be angry, only be angry at sin. But do not sin yourself. And do not let the sun go down on your anger because you'll be giving the devil an opportunity. You'll be giving him an open door. Now, it's interesting, Paul uses the word devil here in chapter 6 in the spiritual warfare section. He'll use that. Elsewhere, besides the pastoral epistles, he always refers to him as Satan. It's, it's referring to the same person, the enemy of our souls. So do not give place to the devil, literally is what it's saying. In other words, don't give the devil a chance to exert his influence in one way or another. The same word occurs in Romans 12.19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room, literally give place for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now, mark it well. Paul, nowhere in this text or in the, any other text doesn't say, well, the source of your anger is from Satan. You know, you can, the old Flip Wilson thing, really dating myself, you know, the devil made me do it or whatever. No, the devil does not make you become angry. It's your own sinful heart and your own selfish desires that war within you, that provoke you to anger. It's not the devil's fault. But here he's saying, you can give the devil an opportunity, and the devil will quickly seize the opportunity, changing the anger that you have into a grudge and resentment and bitterness and all of these things that are clearly forbidden in Scripture. That's why James can write this, you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak. Don't, isn't it funny how, how many words want to come out of our mouth when we become angry? <laughs> slow to speak, speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Secondly, self-control is essential And just think of all the fruits of the Spirit, and they're really connected. These are things that we need to cultivate, things we need to put on, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, putting these things on. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So in verses 26 and 27 here, there's really a snapshot, a picture of spiritual warfare, the struggle takes place in the moral sphere of our hearts and in our lives. Thomas Manton, his short quote, profound and true, nothing makes room for Satan more than wrath. Wrath and anger, that makes room. Um, the NIV has don't give the devil a foothold. It's literally don't give place to, but, but that's a good analogy. And you think of rock climbers when they scale these hills. They don't need a six-foot-wide trail, right? Or a three-foot-wide trail like we do when we go hiking or something like that. But they're scaling with the littlest, smallest rocks with each step moving up, right, and proceeding up. That's all the devil needs is that little, tiny foothold. 
some, the smallest place of opportunity, and he will come <clears throat> cause you to stumble. So we must be on guard. Charles Spurgeon says, speaking of unrighteous anger, he says, and some of you have heard this before, but anger is temporary insanity. And you think about that. Think about the last time you were really sinfully angry. It is. It's like insanity, isn't it? <laughs> temporary insanity. He goes on to say, I have no more right as a Christian to allow a bad temper to dwell in me than I have to allow the devil himself to dwell there. Well, finally today, and briefly, be committed to living for the glory of God. I'm speaking to Christians now. Those of you who have new natures in Christ, you put on the new self, strive to obey God's law. God's law is His moral, unchanging standard of righteousness for all time. It will never change. And Paul reiterates several of the Ten Commandments summed up in the moral law, that we call the moral law, in his, all of his writings and several in this letter, which we'll see. And the, we have to come back to this. Nothing will shape our thinking about what God demands of us and how to live ethically than when we think about who he is and what he's done for us. We think about his character and all of his attributes Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is the duty that God requires of man? The duty that God requires of man is obedience to his revealed will. goes on to say, where is that will delineated? It's delineated in the moral law summarized by the Ten Commandments. And here, these are ethical exhortations, and they're vital to our testimony. They're vital to our Christian growth if we're going to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. But we can't do these in our, in our, of our own strength. We must look to Christ. Look to Jesus who kept God's law perfectly in His act of obedience. 1 John 2.4, the one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth of God is not in Him. Jonathan Edwards would say that there is no love to God where there is not delight in God. You see, to obey externally, to go through the motions and grudgingly and all of that is not enough. We need to truly delight in who He is and all of His attributes <clears throat> to truly love Him. Nothing motivates the man of God to obedience as much as understanding the greatness of God. And so really, at the end of the day, what we need to glorify God is more of an understanding of who He is more of Christ, as the hymn writer says. More of Christ. How can we get that? By studying His Word. By meditating on the Scriptures. To labor in prayer and communion with Him. And walking according to His commandments. Well, let's conclude with just two simple points of application for us today. First, if you're not a Christian here today, you have no strength to do this. I mean, lies are just so characteristic of the non-believer that if they're just constantly there. It's just it's natural in the heart. That's why those of us who are parents, we know as soon as a child is can't even talk but can shake the head, we'll lie. <laughs> Did you take the cookie? Mm-mm. <laughs> you know, the cookie's still in the mouth. It comes naturally because we're born in sin. And so whether you're young or old, you have no ability to obey the Lord. At best, you'd be like a Pharisee with outward performance. What you need is a new heart. You need a new heart and a new mind. A transformation. A complete transformation. And how does that come about? By repenting of our sins. Admitting we're a sinner. Turning from our sins. Looking to Christ who died for sinners. And casting ourselves on His mercy and trusting in Him. Jesus said, Come unto Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The invitations like that are everywhere in the Scriptures to come to the Lord. So don't harden your heart if you're outside of Christ today. And then for us Christians, we should continue to be amazed at all the wealth that we have in Christ. The riches that are ours in Christ. We have new natures. We have new... Uh, bents and desires to please Him. In the midst of these exhortations to obey God's law of truth, and we need self-control to do that, we're reminded that we're God's children, not by works, not by our works, 
but through the cross. Because Jesus is the one that paid for every one of our sins. He's the one that, that, that lived the perfect life and kept all of God's commands perfectly. And we're forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ, which is effectual unto salvation. We could never keep the law. The Gospel is not for the righteous, it's for sinners. Sinners who admit, I fall short of God's perfect standard. You can't control, if you can't control your tongue and your temper, you need to cry out that the Lord would change you and He will change you. But the Gospel delivers us from the practice of sin. The Gospel will totally reshape your thinking to where you will be repulsed by sin. You'll not want the sin. You'll want to run away from it and choose those things which are good and right and edifying. If we do not stand out as being different in this lost world, who will? The Mormons? They're doing a good job external morality and all of that, and that's why that religion continues to grow, which could be someday, if the Lord allows it, a a major world religion. The Muslims? No, we need to stand up and be different. And we're going to be different by our lifestyles. May the Lord help us to put these things on, to implement these ethical exhortations which are throughout here for His glory. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank You that we can come to Your Word and to learn and we confess, Lord, we need to learn so much. We pray, O God, that You would help us to be doers of Your Word and not hearers only. Lord, we pray for our children here, even as these, as we talk about white lies and becoming angry and we see that in our children so much, we see it in our own hearts, Lord. I pray that you would make these sins out to be what they really are, an offense to a holy God, and that we would have dealings with them. Lord, we bless you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.